Welcome to the Salt Lamp. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sorry. Welcome to. <laughs> Can you tell we're recording in person? <laughs> Welcome to Salt Lamp Storytime, the podcast where we tell you stories with telling over drinks. My name's Jess Nani, and I'm joined today by my life saving co host, Allison Hillman. I just made up my own theme song, like Kronk. You need a you need a theme song for when you do CPR, you know? Honestly, can I can I tell you this? I haven't told anybody this. So there's different songs you can sing to help with CPR, uh-huh. like Staying Alive, Another One Bites the Dust is the best one, but it's also like kind of rough, ironic. Rough. Yeah. Right, yeah. The song that I use is WAP, but specifically yeah. Megan the Stallion's part. Uh-huh. Where it's like gobble me, swallow me, drip down the soda me. Genius. Wah, 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 that's some wet. You know, like it, uh-huh. I, I was, like, I don't want to say that I was singing that when I was doing chest compressions on that guy, but I'm also not going to deny the possibility. Yeah, you were counting. It felt wrong, but, you know, that's just happened to be where my brain went, I guess. As is your God given right. Allison celebrated her, what she's referring to as her eighth grade graduation, while I'm referring to as. <laughs> her graduation into life-saving certificate having this thank you thank you <laughs> and uh we're recording in person today because she got to do this fun little graduation and we came up and had a celebratory dinner as she deserves and thanks yeah so we're gonna awkwardly not look into each other's eyes for the next two hours while we record <sighs> it's so weird because we were just talking in this exact same position uh-huh. but as soon as we hit record we can't even look at each other but again, I, I really appreciate you coming. Like it it did feel my it does feel like my eighth grade graduation in the sense that I have like all of high school to look forward to now, essentially, because I'm just gonna keep going through this as a career, you know? I mean I didn't have an eighth grade graduation, but I I feel like it's somewhat akin to what it would have felt like. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so if all goes to plan, hopefully I'll just be able to raw dog my way through paramedic school I next. Can't wait to hear all about it. <laughs> it it's gonna be a lot but you know i believe in you if anybody I, can raw dog it it's you thank you that that's always what i was raised to believe so i appreciate you and it's so fun to have you here for what is going to become such an emotional episode uh-huh but before that jess i just have to put this on the podcast you told me about this earlier but your fiance brendan's mother is a twin Yes, his mother is a twin. And she has twin telepathy. She does. I told her about our twin episode and asked her if her and her twin have twin telepathy and kind of told her some of the stories that you had mentioned. And she confirmed she absolutely does have twin telepathy with her brother uh, when he was hit by a car on a bike uh, several years ago. She fully like jolted and knew that something was wrong with him and like had a hole and they were not anywhere near each other. Uh, when he had his appendix burst, kind of a similar thing. So what's crazy is that she's told me that where her – so she had her appendix taken out when she was a kid, mm-hmm. and he had his taken out in his 40s, mm-hmm. like within the last six years. And she said that when he had his appendix start, like, hurting, the place in her body where her appendix had hurt when she'd had her appendix out started hurting again. Like, ugh. And she's like, I don't have an appendix. So I knew that, like, that wasn't what it was. And then I found out that Michael was, like, having appendicitis. Oh, that's so crazy. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So anyway, shout out Michelle for telling us her twin telepathy stories. And, uh... I think you mentioned something else about how when they were younger, he wasn't easy to understand and she was able to fully translate for him. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah, she basically talked for him as a kid. 
That's just Isn't that crazy. Ah, God, twin telepathy is so cool. It really is. It really is. It was fun to listen to her talk about it, uh, especially because her brother has autism and uh, didn't talk for a long time as a kid. And so she, when she was telling me about the fact that she would talk for him, she also was like, laughed a little bit. And she was like, I bet you he has it, but doesn't know that's what it is. Like when she's gotten sick or had like her stuff. Because oh, yeah. he doesn't like, he wouldn't think to tell her basically. So she was like, I wonder if he's ever had it, but like, like it has we wouldn't to go know. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. God damn. Like what? I know. It's okay. so fun. It's so fun. But. Anywho, today, continuing our Pride series, Alice and I are talking about influential queer people in history. I'm really excited. Allison has teased hers a little bit, and yeah. she has mentioned that she will likely cry. I can't wait. I will. I'm also probably going to cry in mine, so thrilled about yeah. that. I, I'm just tipsy enough to lose my fucking mind. <laughs> but uh, I said it once and I'll say it again. I'm really bad at being gay. Like, like I'm good at the actual physicality <laughs> part of it, but when it comes to knowing all of the letters and the flags, I don't know any of the flags or the history. I just don't feel like I know as much as I should yeah like I'm definitely not as involved in the community as I should be like for example I didn't go to pride this year because I was too tired like oh my god yeah but pride that's your given like it's it's pride month you deserve to celebrate however you want and that was taking time for (laughs) self-care I I was at home playing the new legend of Zelda game that was my version of self-care just nothing could be gayer honestly it was <laughs> honestly okay wait quick side note this new legend of zelda game tears of the kingdom is so good it's so much fun and i must say arguably i like it more than the first one i know that's controversial okay that's what i've been hearing it has okay you know me i'm a slut for puzzles and i'm a slut for fantasy games so it's just like everything's every single thing that i want in a game it just keeps on giving it's you have to be so much more creative with how you solve problems in this game i mean i paid like 60 dollars for it but i I do it again when you think okay just again quick sidebar regarding zelda when you think about how much development goes into that open platform game though yeah the fact that it's only 60 dollars yeah is kind of wild i will say you said you don't want to spoil it and i also don't want to spoil it i have we talked about this have we talked about my new phase of youtube (laughs) wait wait what okay what is it i've been watching video game playthroughs okay specifically so i have one i only watch one person do playthroughs i'm gonna shout out their youtube her name is charlie barley on youtube okay the way i found her is that i was when i first started playing stardew and getting into it she did stardew valley beginner tutorials basically where she would run through like she she has a video that's like play the first hundred days of stardew with me and learn how to like play it to best set yourself up for like the rest of the game right and then i just like started following her Mm -hmm. and she plays through all of the games that i love so she's played through animal crossing she does like funny villager hunt videos and she has the most soothing voice She's just so quirky and so funny, but she does, like, she'll do live streams of her playing through these games for, like, five hours. I will turn them on when she starts and work while she does it. It's, like, body doubling, you know, like, when you watch other people do chores on YouTube and, like, you do chores for people that have ADHD. It's basically that for me, but instead of watching somebody do chores, it's her 
playing insert game mm. and then she just like talks about her life like she's a garden that she talks about anyway i'm obsessed with her she loves zelda so i've watched her full playthrough of breath of the wild it is an extensive series we're talking hours upon hours of my life listening to this in the background oh my gosh i'll have to check her out she sounds absolutely lovely so good so i've been watching her she's been playing doing live streams of her beating tears of the kingdom and it has been I get giddy. She I she will do one tomorrow. That's what she's been doing on Saturdays for like the last what since the game came out. And it is it's been like a date I have with myself. It it is so good. And what I like about it most though is that it's kind of the same thing with Animal Crossing and Stardew. Like you don't need to be a, you don't need to be a gamer to play this game or be good at it. It's yeah. I don't know. Ugh, just big fan. Anyway, Oh, yeah. Uh, back to the gay thing. <laughs> I don't know nearly as much as I should about queer history, and that's why I'm so looking forward to this episode with you, Jess, because I learned something while researching my story, and I know I'm going to learn something yeah. while I'm listening to yours. So Yes. And I think it is especially important right now with everything going on in this world, especially regarding transgender people, it's important to remember those who came before us and how they fought for the rights that we do have yes. today. And we need to continue that fight to protect those rights that they fought and died for. So, yes, absolutely. Also, shout out to the federal judges who are blocking all of these anti-trans bills that are going through state legislatures right now. You're you're really doing the Lord's work and Truly. fuck the senators that are trying to push those bills through. Anyway, I also feel like I learned a lot in my episode. I'm really or in my story. I'm really excited to tell you about it and then learn from yours. So without further ado, Allison, what do you have to tell me today? Oh my god, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched your eyes glaze I, I'm already so emotionally overwhelmed. I just am going to tell you a story today you might have guessed from the name of our podcast and the fact that we're sitting here with microphones in front of our faces and we've teased the fact that we have great stories to each other this Um, is a story that you tell me over drinks in a bar maybe oh my gosh perhaps one could say that with a margarita with salt and lime this this is this is a story time part of it thank you (laughs) anyway so today jess I am going to tell you about Edith Windsor and Thea Spire. <gasps> okay, fun. I don't know anything about them. Well, get ready to get learned. Okay. So my sources for this are Edie and Thea, A Very Long Engagement documentary on Prime. It is so cute, so beautiful. And that's where I got most of my primary sources, uh, primary quotes from. A 2013 Time article by Eliza Gray, a 2013 Guardian article by Adam Gabbett, and a 2017 New York Times article by Robert McFadden. I'm going to tell you a story about Edith Windsor and Thea Spire. It's one of the most beautiful love stories I've ever had the pleasure of learning about. And I truly hope I can get through this without ugly crying. I hope but, you do. You know, we'll see. <laughs> Takes gratuitous sip of wine. Oh, yeah. I'm drinking a tall glass of Pinot Grigio right now. I'm drinking a dirty Diet Coke. Beautiful. On June 26th, 2015, does that date ring a bell to you? It's my grandma's birthday. 
shout out <laughs> granny nani um c- congratulations to her uh but also shout out to the fact that this was the day that the U.S. Supreme Court overturned DOMA, a.k.a. legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Oh, yeah. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember when this happened. I remember when that happened, too. This is really embarrassing. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't be. How are you supposed to know the exact date? Not my strong suit. Dates? Not my strong suit. No, no, no. no. <laughs> See, like, if somebody asked me, like, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I only know that literally because I was just looking up the exact date. Like, I remember the time kind of when it happened. Mm-hmm. I remember I was 18, but that that's kind of all I got. Anyway, so DOMA was overturned. Same-sex marriage was legalized. This was obviously a humongous step for the LGBTQ community. And the woman at the head of this movement was 84-year-old Edith Windsor. Mm-hmm. Edith had just lost her partner of over 44 years. Thea. Oh, God. You already. I'm in the first three sentences. Oh, no. No. <laughs> God damn it. Look at my eyes. Rally. <laughs> okay. Allison is fully red. <laughs> okay. Okay. So she just lost her partner of over 44 years, Thea and was ordered to pay $363,000 in estate taxes because the U.S. federal government did not recognize their Canadian marriage. Edith appealed, and her case eventually made its way to the Supreme Court. After years of fighting, Domo was finally overturned. Edith got to watch members of her own community marry for the first time in U.S. history, something her and Thea had only dreamed of doing. Today, Jess, I am going to tell you a story of love, passion, secrecy, and justice. I am going to tell you the story of Edith Windsor and Thea Spire. Okay, I just have to put in one small aside. You can cut this out if you'd like. Earlier today, Allison and I were editing our podcasts together, and Allison goes, Yeah, I'm having a hard time with the intro, too, when I had said I really hate writing intros. That was a beautiful intro. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it was also really hard because I kept wanting to talk to Jess about my story, but I knew I couldn't. Mm-hmm. We had that happen a few times. I had to like stop myself. One of the things I wanted to say most is is the next three words, which is introducing Edith Windsor, but she goes by Edie, which is one of my favorite names. I, I love it. Love the name Edie. I think it's so cute. Anyway. Edith, or Edie Windsor, was born in Philadelphia on June 20th, 1929, in the midst of the Great Depression. Her parents were Jewish immigrants from Russia who owned a candy store. When Edie was two, her and her brother contracted, you guessed it, polio, Okay. and the family had to quarantine their store and their apartment above it. Every source I looked at, that's all they knew, and I wanted to know so much more, like, Polio is not like the flu. No. Like, you can't just get over that. I, I, I don't know. It's a disabling it disease. Yeah. Anyway. But she was very able-bodied until the day she died, so I don't know. Well, it might be that thing about how sometimes people have, like, COVID can be absolutely debilitating. Yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah, I guess that's true. But then, like, some people are just fine, you know? So... Yeah, so she got it when she was two years old, so maybe her youth had something to do with the fact that it didn't mess her up completely. Yeah. Either way, her and her brother got really sick, and because it was the Great Depression, they couldn't afford it, and they just lost everything. Mm-hmm. This is so cute. Regardless of the struggles, Edie's father would trade his lunch for books to give his daughter, 
who was an avid reader. Her mother also taught her to stand up for herself. If a boy called Edie, quote, a dirty Jew, she was to pull his hair and run home. Oh. Which, honestly, honestly, good, kind of into good it. Good mom. Edie recalls watching movies and identifying with the leading man, not the woman he was trying to woo, which coincidentally I can relate to so much. Like, yeah, it's crazy yeah. because like she was born in 1929, but her story is so relatable. Oh, I love that for you. I don't know. It's just like the little things that you don't notice when you're not aware that you're gay yet that becomes so obvious yeah. when you're older. It's just so funny. I especially remember even in the Princess Diaries. Uh, I related more to, like, the guy Nicholas than I did her. I don't know. It's just really interesting seeing the similarities. But still, she didn't realize she was attracted to women until one night when she was in college. Quote, The first time I became aware, I was at a college party with a boy, and I was in the kitchen. And the hostess came in and said, Do you have homosexual relations? (laughs) What? <laughs> if and I ever have a gay child and I'm just like, Ugh. hey, I'm going to be <laughs> there, like, haven't haven't talked about it until their 20s. I'll be like, hey, do you have homosexual relations? That's like the least sexy way that you could ask anybody. Like, hey, do you fuck? The next time you sleep with somebody, I need you to text me and say, just had homosexual relations. Uh, you will not catch me dead. <laughs> anyway, so the hostess came in and said... Do you have homosexual relations? (laughs) And I pulled myself together and I said, on occasion, I never had. (laughs) I love that so much. That is so cunty. I know. Isn't that great? Where she was like, I wanted to think that, yes, I am experienced. I don't know why I wanted to think I'm experienced, though. That's weird, you know? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Such a relatable thing. So... In 1948, Edie fell in love for the first time with a female classmate at Temple University. Edie remembers it being both, quote, wonderful and terrible. Mm -hmm. Edie broke off her engagement to the man she was marrying to be with this woman, but things quickly fell apart. Mm -hmm. She just wasn't ready to live life as a gay person, so she got back together with him and they did marry. Edie said, quote, in the context of the homophobia that was so prevalent in the 1950s, I certainly didn't want to be a queer. Instead, I wanted to live a normal life, end quote. Which is just so interesting because like, I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I mean, my thought process was when I first started to come to terms with it was it's okay if other people are gay, but it's not okay if I'm gay. Yeah. And it's just so interesting to see such a similar thought process in somebody that was going through this in the 40s. I don't know. It's just it's just crazy. Out of love for her husband, she was eventually honest about her longing to be with women, and they divorced less than a year later. In the 1950s, Edie moved to New York City, where there was a big underground gay scene. One day, in 1962, Edie couldn't take it anymore and said to a friend, quote, if you know where the lesbians go, please take me. <laughs> Which is ironically something that I would definitely say to this day. So, <laughs> Now, scene shift. Let's talk about Thea. Thea Spire was born in Amsterdam on October 8th, 1931. A European. I love she, that for her. She is the picture perfect. Olive tan, European woman anybody would fall in love with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Her mother died when she was a baby and her father remarried soon after. 
in the mid 1930s. Jess, can you can you um, tell me what was happening in 1930s Europe? One could say World War II. One could say that Hitler was like, "What is up, everybody?" And that you're correct. That is exactly what was happening. <laughs> and her dad was like, "I am recognizing the threat this poses for my Jewish family." I think we're going to GTFO since we're rich and we can afford Fair. to do that. Fair. So in 1939, they did GTFO and they moved to England, something very few Jewish families could afford to do. Yeah. Thea was always very aware of how lucky her family was to have the money to escape the Nazis. Like in this documentary, she she talks about it. Like she's super, super grateful. Yeah. Um, by the end of the war, the Nazis had murdered over 75% of the Jews in her homeland. Every time I read stats like that, it it always blows my mind. Like, I, I always forget how close Hitler came to annihilating every Jew in Europe. Oh, yeah. Like, it's so scary. Absolutely. Well, and then also, like, at that same time, you know, and this is interestingly enough relevant to both to my story as well. I mean, obviously, part of the uh, Nazi philosophy, basically, like, it included homosexuals. Yeah. There were gay people in the concentration camps. That's where the pink triangle comes from and and the whole bit. And so, like, add that doubly for her as a queer person, like, as a queer Jewish person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't even think about that aspect of it. Yeah. Damn. Anyway. Not much is known about her time moving from Europe and growing up, but the next I know is she next attended Sarah Lawrence College in New York. The gayest thing you can do. Is that it? Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me why. It's an all-girls college. Did I apply there? I'm not going to lie. I applied to a couple all-girls schools for this reason. As you should. Anyway. Thea attended Sarah Lawrence College in New York as a music major. She was an extremely talented violinist and was always picked to be the lead violin in any performance they had. The day she came in second, she quit as a music major and changed her major to psychology. Oh, she was my God. so yeah. stubborn, <laughs> which I honestly go off, you know. A few years into college, Thea had her first affair with a woman. This woman was nine years older than Thea, wore high heels, and drove a bright red convertible. Honestly, I, I would have probably dated her, too. Come on. Yeah. Okay, this, this part's so disgusting. Um, one night, they were making out in a parking lot, and unbeknownst to them, there was a night watchman standing outside the car watching them the whole time. And of oh course, only gosh. after they were finished and he got the whole show yeah. did he report it to the dean of the college and Thea was expelled. God, what the fuck? Like, Thea talks about this also on the documentary and she, her words are like, it is so horrendous thinking about it today, which, oh my God. She then went to Adelphi University and graduated with a PhD in clinical psychology in 1963. Oh, good for her. We love a doctorate. So now let's talk about how Thea and Edie met. The year, 1963. The place, a New York City restaurant called Portofino that catered to lesbians on Friday nights. Edie said, quote, I called an old friend of mine, a very good friend, and I said, if you know where the lesbians go, please take me. Somebody brought Thea over and introduced her and we just started dancing, end quote. So sweet. 
They danced and danced and danced the night away until Edie wore a hole through her stocking. These are your best friends. That was day one. Over the next two years, they would see each other at bars and parties. And when they did, they would dance until the sun came up. Such a lesbian thing to do. Like, two years and you're still not making a move. Oh, my God. (laughs) But as amazing as this was, Edie was still wishing things would be different. She was attending group therapy and just praying that she would turn straight and meet a nice guy with kids and become a mother. And I, in the documentary, the way she worded this, it made it, it – she said, like, that she wanted to meet a guy with kids, not that she wanted to have kids with a guy. So, I mean, it's almost like she didn't want to have sex. She just wanted to become a mother. So, I mean, I don't – know if that's true that's just how i interpreted it interesting she said that she didn't want to live a life without love and she felt that might be the only way she could get it was through a heterosexual relationship but still that didn't stop her from dancing with thea every time they saw one another at one bar the bagatelle which was a secret dive bar for lesbians in new york city that was run by you guessed it the mafia love that they recall dancing with each other all night while their current partners stood at the door coats on ready to leave just glaring at them and i also think in in this same documentary they say that eventually they're like okay fine we'll go and they you know went to join their partners by the door and they put on their own coats and then they looked at each other and just kept dancing with their coats on until the sun came up, which is, oh my God. Okay. Anyway. Oh my gosh. Edie describes what it was like dating women. And I thought it was very true. Quote, see, when you dated guys in the second date, then you would kiss with women. You didn't touch until you couldn't bear not to end quote. And my God, God, truer words have never been spoken. That is so true. They literally let the sexual tension build for two whole years until anything actually happened. Finally, after two years, Edie heard through the grapevine that Thea and her current partner had split and Thea was going to the Hamptons for the summer. So, Jess, what did Edie do? Edie had to go to the Hamptons. Uh She hopped on that sweaty bus that you have to take to go to the Hamptons and she said... I'm coming for you. I know where we're dancing. Gay ass in the Hamptons and low-key stalking so I can scissor you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, That's the remix. Anywho, Edie did what I like to consider the most passive lesbian move of all time. She called the one person she kind of knew who lived in the Hamptons and was like, hey, mind if I come hang out for the weekend? And they were like, okay and Edie was like great I'll be there in a minute and she Edie said that she didn't know how or when they would see each other but she just knew they would and sure enough one night Edie heard that Thea was going to drop someone off at the very house that Edie was staying at when everyone else went out dancing that night Edie stayed behind staring at the driveway just waiting to see Thea pull up to the house what you know been there sister I love this for her Edie waited until two in the morning when her friend group came back from the night out and they were like, oh, shoot. Yeah, apparently Thea had to work late and yeah, she's just going to drop the friend off tomorrow. And I'm sure Edie was like, "Okay, fuck you guys. And she went straight to bed and then, of course, woke up at the crack of dawn 
to continue watching and waiting for she was down so bad right literally simping so hard so finally a few hours later thea finally showed up so the two of them were talking in the kitchen quote thea and i were leaning against the counter and i kept almost touching her and then i felt like an idiot so i stopped i can't tell you how long it felt like a year I put my hand near hers on the counter over there. Then I took it away. And finally, I said, is your dance card filled? And she said, it is now. I grabbed her and we made love all afternoon and went dancing at night. And that was just the beginning. Oh, my gosh. How cute is that? Is your dance card filled? That's so adorable. And for those of you that don't know, um, dance card is is like an old timey thing that they used to do where basically like you would have people lined up for every dances for every song that was going to come on so you basically had like dance reservations with other people throughout the night and so she's like hey is your dance card filled was just like the cutest most timely pickup line of all time big fan anyway when Theo was asked about this encounter she said quote I had just broken up with this last person and I really wanted to have a nice time and no, I'm not using cleaned up language. I wanted to play the field. <laughs> that was definitely the plan. And then somehow this thing with Edie began. End mm-hmm. quote. So after that first night actually getting together, they went to the beach that next morning. And Theo recalls thinking, quote, this is a mess. Oh, shit. This is the end of my plan. This is not going to work because this one's got something very different. Oh, oh God. Romance. I know. And Jess, can I ask you, what is more romantic than taking an exotic trip to Africa with the person you just started dating, says the lesbians? Sure. So at this time, Edie defined the relationship as, quote, We were dating and we were having a lot of sex, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Thea chimes in saying, It was a good affair, a nice trip, but it was nothing more than that. (laughs) So they hadn't defined the relationship, but they were traveling to another country together. They hadn't had a DTR. What? A determine the relationship conversation. Ah, thank you for that. So they hadn't defined the relationship, but they were traveling to another country together. So they were fucked, you know. That trip very much tested their relationship, but at the end, it only brought them closer together. One thing, I didn't put this in here, but it was really cute. In the documentary, they were describing how a couple times when tensions were really high, um, one one situation was... Like, their, their boat got stuck on some rapids, and Edie was really scared because she can't swim. And Thea helped get her to the side, and she was like, oh, you saved me. Uh, but one of the times where they were like, Edie was like, I'm never going to talk to this girl again. It was, like, one night, and they were saying that there are all these, like, rabid bats and mosquitoes. <laughs> okay. And Edie was just able to fall asleep, and Thea kept, like punching her in the shoulder trying to get her awake like what the fuck don't leave me here and like how could you sleep in a situation like this and Edie was like i i can't do this and but i mean like who hasn't been there yeah you can't sleep but your partner can it's so upsetting it's so frustrating livid (laughs) livid oh my gosh 
Love that for them. This so is how I know that Brendan is like Brendan really is my lobster because whenever I can't sleep and he wakes up and realizes that I can't fall asleep, he will like read to me until I fall asleep and then he'll <gasps> fall asleep. Oh my god. <laughs> That's so sweet. It's really fucking sweet. <gasps> That's so nice. <laughs> anyway. Thank you for sharing that. I'm just feeling all the romance vibes and I like haven't talked to Brendan in going on, you know, three days. And now I'm like. He's on his ba- bachelor trip. Brendan is currently on his bachelor trip and we have texted but not called. Sure. We don't know the protocol. So anyway. It's disgustingly continue. adorable. So as their relationship continued to blossom, Edie had to lie continuously to her work friends as to why she wasn't going out with them anymore on the weekends. She obviously couldn't tell them she was in a relationship with another woman. To explain why Thea called her at work, Edie invented a relationship with Thea's brother, Willie, who is actually a childhood doll of Thea's that Edie kept long into her old age. Oh, That's so sweet. So, Jess, you might now be asking, but how did their families handle this? How did their families handle this, Allison? Thank you for asking. And and very poorly is the answer. Thea said, quote, each one of us had a really, really extremely painful experience with our own families. End quote. Aww. Edie never told her parents, but she told her older sister, who at first seemed supportive until yeah. Edie and Thea became really serious. And then she, quote, turned totally homophobic shockingly homophobic we went years not speaking at all oh yeah it's too bad um however Edie's mother loved Thea and eventually found out who they were to each other just yeah because she knew and but she didn't make a big deal out of it she never said anything which is super progressive for like a six-year-old woman in the 1960s you know yeah Thea was not so lucky When she was 16, her father had found a secret love letter hidden away in her room, and he essentially outed her to the rest of the family. He made Thea go to therapy, and the therapist assured her father that it was a phase associated with her youth, and she'd get married to a man, and everything would be okay. (laughs) Yeah, I heard that one before. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds familiar. Which is LOL jokes on him. She would go on to become like one of the most iconic lesbians in history. So in the documentary, Thea didn't want to elaborate any more on the homophobia she experienced at the hands of her family, other than saying that they were very disapproving. So you can only imagine how awful they were to her. Yeah. It's also worth noting that homosexuality wouldn't be declassified as a mental illness until 1973. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Which is crazy that this was like, they were actually being lumped in with people with actual cognitive deficits. Yes. They eventually bought a home and just fell more and more in love with each other. In 1967, Thea proposed. In place of an engagement ring, she gave Edie a diamond brooch because a ring would have provoked questions about who the lucky man was that she was engaged to. Edie said, quote, She got out of the car and got down on her knees and said, Edie Windsor, will you marry me? And this pin appeared. End quote. Before Thea could finish her sentence, Edie was jumping up and down saying, yes, yes, yes. All right, so I'm sending you a couple pictures. Please, I'm ready. One is of them in front of the house that they purchased together. 
and the other is Edie posing with her the the diamond brooch on her shirt. I'm sorry. Say the word brooch. Um, <laughs> excuse me. It's pronounced brooch. Why wouldn't they put a fucking A in it then? I'm sorry. I'm not 107 years old. How am I supposed to know how to pronounce the word brooch? Oh, I hate you. Are you joking? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, that's how you say brooch. Okay, well, I'm in this era, so it's a pin. Okay, diamond brooch. the cutest thing I've ever... And it's also about to be the cutest thing you've ever seen. Take a look. Oh, they are such a hot couple, first of all. Right? Oh. Oh. So that's Edie on the right and Thea on the left. And they made sure that the brooch was as circle and ring-like as possible because they wanted to make it as symbolic without giving it away. Yeah. It's like a full, it's like basically a diamond band with like... It's probably more expensive than a fucking diamond ring. Like, anyway. In the late 60s slash early 70s, civil rights protests were really erupting around the country and Edie and Thea became heavily involved. However, Edie recalls becoming angry at the world because they marched for everyone else's rights, but there was nobody marching for theirs. Even the feminist organization now, NOW, was worried lesbians marching with them would ruin their image. Uh Uh-huh. Until the Stonewall riots in 1969, there wasn't a spotlight on gay rights whatsoever, and Edie credits those drag queens for completely changing her life. Quote, Until then, I'd always had the feeling, and I know it's ignorant and unfair, I don't want to be identified with the queens. But from that day on, I had this incredible gratitude. They changed my life. They changed my life forever. End quote. I mean, Marsha P. Johnson was a trans woman. I think for sure it's kind of like an all-encompassing umbrella term that includes trans women as well. They just call them all queens. Yeah. This is a big deal because, as you can see from Edie's comments, the queer community itself had its own prejudices, which it still does today. Yes. Thea and Edie didn't always feel comfortable in the gay community and were often judged for taking on masculine and feminine roles. For example, there was one night at a gay bar in the Hamptons when they were getting shit for falling into heteronormative roles, basically, and Thea stood on the table and yelled, quote, if you don't have room for my butch and her femme, then you don't have a movement. Oh my god, icon. Which, mic drop. Get it, Thea. Anyway. Thanks to the Stonewall riots, people were finally protesting for gay rights. Thea and Edie finally marched in parades with rainbow flags. They joined gay and lesbian organizations. And most importantly, they lived openly as lesbians for the first time ever. They were in their 40s. Unfortunately, in 1977, Thea was diagnosed with chronic progressive multiple sclerosis. She was only 45 years old. This disease is basically where the immune system attacks your brain and spinal cord and can cause you to become partially, if not completely, paralyzed. It's so awful. Like It's a mean, mean disease. She started out having to use two canes, then that turned into two crutches, and before long she was confined to a wheelchair. However, she continued to work and see patients, which kept her in good spirits. But after a few years, she started to lose use of her arms. 
for the rest of her life, she was confined to a motorized wheelchair she could control with a thumb and pointer finger on her left hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that they didn't have a good attitude about it. You know, for Halloween one year, Thea and Edie went dressed up to a parade as a married couple with a sign on the back of the wheelchair that said, just married. Oh, (laughs) I know. That's so sweet. What the couple missed most was dancing. Thea said, quote, Here I am, quadriplegic, not much is moving. The only thing that would bring me to tears, the only thing, is dancing. When they would go to parties and someone asked Edie to dance, Edie would always say no because she didn't want to dance with anyone except for Thea. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so in the documentary, there is footage of Edie sitting on Thea's lap as Thea drives her wheelchair around the dance floor, both of them laughing like they used to when they first met. Oh. Okay, and so here's a photo, like, basically a screenshot from that moment. Oh. They're just so lovely. It's so, so cute. In 1993, New York City began issuing domestic partnership licenses. This was the closest gay people could get to marriage at the time, but it didn't have any of the legal benefits of marriage. The day it was put into effect, Thea canceled her appointments and her and Edie finally got that license. Aww. They were in their 60s and had been together for over 27 years. Oh my gosh. However... One step forward, two steps back, because yes. in 1996, Congress passed and Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act. <sighs> the law defined marriage as a union between a man and a woman and declared that states would not be required to recognize same-sex marriage performed in other states, which is really weird because it wasn't legal to get married anywhere in the U.S. at the time. So I don't know why they did this. Yeah, I, it doesn't make sense. State rights. Probably just preparing for a future of equality, trying to just tear it down before it starts. Well, that's the thing is then it did. Like, Connecticut passed, they legalized gay marriage within Connecticut, right? And, like, Hawaii, same thing. And then it turned into a whole, like, when they, it turned into a whole thing. Like, my, so my grandpa got married in Connecticut legally but his marriage wasn't considered valid in utah so when like the federal passing of gay marriage happened it was like a big deal because him and his husband were like oh we are now recognized in utah dude yeah that's wild yeah this whole thing is just so convoluted it's insane so anyway unfortunately in 2007 thea was given a year to live after being diagnosed with a heart condition Edie said, quote, having gotten the bad prognosis, she woke up the next morning and said, do you still want to get married? And I said, yes. And she said, so do I, end quote. The two traveled to Canada where same-sex marriage had been legalized. And on May 22, 2007, they were married by Harvey Brownstone, Canada's first openly gay judge. Thea was 76 and Edie was 78. In order, okay, just get it together. <laughs> in order, okay, in order for Thea to put the ring on Edie's finger, two of the best women held Thea's arm and the ring in her hand, and Edie slid her finger into the ring. Edie said, quote, 
I made sure to add, and days passed in our vows, because by the time we got married, we had already lived together for 42 years. You can't forget that. Oh my god. And I'm, this is a photo of them on their wedding day with their, uh, with the signed marriage certificate. After returning to New York, Thea said, I can die now. She felt that her life was finally complete. On February 5th, 2009, Thea Spire passed away at the age of 77. One month later, Edie was hospitalized with a heart attack. Edie didn't even have time to recover before she was served a $363,000 estate tax bill on property that Thea had left her. So the thing is that spouses are exempt from estate tax, but because of DOMA, the U.S. government didn't recognize their legal Canadian marriage. Edie said, quote, In the midst of my grief, I realized that the federal government was treating us as strangers. Yeah. God, that's after 44 years of marriage. Can you imagine? Edie took her case to court, declaring the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional. Her case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. She said, quote, I trust the Supreme Court. I trust the Constitution. So I feel a certain confidence that we'll win. And she did. On June 26, 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four that Section 3 of the so-called Defense of Marriage Act as unconstitutional and the federal government cannot discriminate against married, lesbian, and gay couples for the purposes of determining federal benefits and protections. <sighs> A little long-winded, but okay. The case is known as the United States versus Windsor which it literally was. That's just crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. Two years later, to the day, on June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court made same-sex marriage a constitutional guarantee across all 50 states. Meanwhile, I was just getting drunk in a canyon somewhere. She was out <laughs> changing the world, fighting for my rights. When asked if being married truly made a difference, Edie said, quote, it turns out marriage is different. I've asked a number of long-range couples, gay couples, who they've got married. I've asked them, was it different the next morning? And the answer is always yes. It's a huge difference. End quote. And it goes far beyond symbolic or practical. After the Supreme Court's decision, gay couples could file joint tax returns, get access to veterans and social security benefits, hold on to their homes when their spouses died, and get green cards for their foreign partners. It also better protected same-sex couples with children. Edie quickly became the matriarch of the gay rights movement and continued her work as a leader in the LGBTQ community. She said, quote, I don't know how to say it that's not corny as hell. I've been having a love affair with the gay community. I got a million letters. I think Thea would love it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And so this is a photo of Edie holding a photo of Thea while wearing the brooch that Thea had proposed to her with 40 years ago. Brooch. Excuse me, Jess. Oh, <laughs> fuck. Edie was honored in Canada's World Pride in 2014. In 2018, a street in Philadelphia was designated as Edie Windsor Way. In June 2019, Edie was one of the 50 American pioneers, trailblazers, and heroes inducted in the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor within the Stonewall National Museum 
in New York City Stonewall Inn. On September 12, 2017, Edie Windsor passed away at the age of 88. Today, she is remembered as one of the leading LGBTQ civil rights activists. Remembering Thea, Edie once said, quote, <laughs> You can do it. Oh, this one really gets me. Shut up, Jess. <laughs> okay, quote, It was a love affair that just kept on and on and on. It really was. Something like three weeks before Thea died, she said, Jesus, we're still in love, aren't we? Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, that one gets me. And I thought this was so funny that they had a whole section in their documentary where they talked about this. One of their best pieces of relationship advice is don't give up sex. No matter what, adjust how you need to, reinvent it if you have to, but don't give up sex. Like, they're, like Edie was literally like, if you have to have somebody come in and place the other on top of you, do it. And I was like, girl, girl. Fair enough. After the 2015 legalization of same-sex marriage, President Obama stood on national television and applauded the countless small acts of courage of millions of people across decades who stood up for gay rights. He said, quote, Sometimes there are days like this when that slow, steady effort is rewarded with justice that arrives like a thunderbolt. And that is a devastatingly beautiful love story of Edith Windsor and Thea Spire. That was really lovely, Allison. Thank you for telling me that. I'm sorry it was so long. No, don't apologize. Yeah, well. <laughs> Thank you, Jess, for sitting through that um, hour-long story I just told you. <laughs> You are so welcome. I had a lot to say, apparently. It was, it was delightful, frankly, to hear about their romance and just, I don't know, as somebody who is about to get married, I just am so enamored by people who love being married, you know? And obviously, like, it was a fight for them to get to that point, but... It blows my mind. Okay, well, here I go again. But it blows my mind that people can look at women like them... Who have been in a relationship for Mm -hmm. 44 years, who have proven time and time again how in love they are, and people still think that it's a phase and that their love isn't real. It just blows my mind. Allison. Jess. This week, I'm going to tell you about who I assume is a contemporary of Edie's. I don't need to assume. I know that he was. I am going to tell you about one of the United States' first openly gay politicians, Harvey Milk. Okay. So the reason I chose Harvey Milk is because there are a lot of streets throughout the country called Harvey Milk Boulevard. There's one in Salt Lake. There's a giant mural of him in Salt Lake. And I knew that he was a I knew that he was a gay rights activist and a politician of some sort. I didn't know much beyond that. And I'm so glad that I picked him. I'm so glad. I learned so much. I will tell you my sources really quick before I forget. I listened to a fantastic, beautiful, very well-researched uh, podcast episode from the Queerest Fact uh, podcast. I watched a couple of films the milk film that is a historical recreation of his life uh it stars sean 
Mendez. No. <laughs> Sean Connery? Yeah. Okay. He does a fantastic job. I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit funny to watch him and James Franco make out, but. Interesting choice it was of a casting. Very, it, it, they did a really great job. The first time I watched them kiss, I was like, this is something I never thought I'd see. I'm here for it. Anyway, I also watched a documentary called The Life of Harvey Milk. I then read several articles, including his biography on the Harvey Milk Foundation website. And as always, ye old Wikipedia. Wiki, wiki, wiki. So, do you know anything about Harvey Milk? I've heard of him. And his last name is Milk, which is something I always thought was really funny. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty sure he's gay. That's what I got. (laughs) Isn't he really pasty? Um, I'll send you a picture of him. I wish you would. Okay, that's not what I thought he looked like. Aw, oh, big okay. ears. Okay, so you just asked me if okay. I knew what, who he was. Mm-hmm. That's about where I was at, like I said earlier. I knew that he was gay. I knew that he was a politician. Beyond that, not much. Okay. So, let's get into it. Harvey Milk was born on May 22nd, 1930, the same year as my great-grandma Gladys, incidentally, in Woodmere, New York, a suburb of New York City. He grew up in a very Jewish family and spent most of his childhood working in their family department store, Milks. Which is that not just like the cutest store name. It was truly meant to be. So Harvey was a deeply outgoing, clownish child who was quick with a joker smile. His senior yearbook quote simply read, and they say women are never at a loss for words, end quote. Oh <laughs> Poking fun at how much he talked in class. He played oh, football funny. and loved the opera, and even as a young child, he was very aware that he was gay, as was his family. Oh, wow. So it's a very interesting thing. Like, he is he is very much aware of his homosexuality from the time he is a young boy. When was he born again? 1930. 1930? Uh-huh. So it's the same time period. No, this is quite so... literally the same time period. Like, he was literally born in the year between them. Yes. That is crazy. Yes. So when he left for college in 1951, he was actively dating men, but in secrecy. While everyone around him knew he was gay, it was a punishable offense to be seen romantically involved with someone of the same gender. Harvey was studying mathematics and didn't want to put his career at risk. A classmate who knew him during this time said, quote, he was never thought of as a possible queer. That's what you called them then. He was a man's man. But is that not what we do today? Like, that is exactly what gaydar is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. What I think it's really interesting and, like, something that, like, is very prevalent is, like, he, on the one hand, like, in his private life is very, like, open about the fact that he's gay. But, like, in public, he's very, very demure about it. It's it's really quite interesting. Anyway, um, something that I, oh, I meant to say this. I did not say this earlier. The other thing that I really like about Harvey Milk is that the parts of his life that, like, are impactful don't start until he's in his 40s which mm. i love because i think it just shows goes to show that like you can do so much no matter what age you are anyway now that i think that 40 is old for our 40 year old listeners it's just you but at your age you feel like your life's ending yeah you like... feel like it's your middle age and you're like and and he has a we'll get we'll get to this so shortly after going to college harvey joined the navy during the korean war as a diving instructor which i mm. thought was a really just fun side fact wow he spent four years in the navy until his sexuality was called into question and he was honorably discharged to avoid a scandal 
After this experience, Harvey spent the next several years in various jobs. He worked as a public school teacher, a stock analyst, and even as a production associate on Broadway. Wow. He was a production associate on the very first run of Jesus Christ Superstar. (laughs) Yes. Icon. Through all of these career changes, Harvey was always consistent in at least one thing his romances Hmm. even though harvey tried his best to stay discreet with his pursuals he was a deeply romantic man in 1956 shortly after leaving the military he met joe campbell while at a gay friendly beach harvey wooed joe relentlessly writing love notes and referring to joe affectionately using the japanese form of respect san joe san just brief sidebar because he was in the military like because he was in the navy and a businessman he spent a lot of time in japan and he picked up on it and the podcast i listened to talking about his life story (laughs) said (laughs) do you know what a weeb is (laughs) a weeb yes can't say ever it's a white person or i don't know it necessarily is just white it's a non-japanese person that's obsessed with japanese culture it's like being an anguliophile okay i know some people yes yes he was a weeb in the 50s nice (laughs) i love this guy so hard and when they like said that on the podcast that i was listening to i laughed so hard because like thinking about somebody being a weeb in the 50s is just so like was anime a thing yet not in the way not the way that it is now but anyway so the two split after about six years and a move to and from texas together but joe would remain one of milk's longest love affairs throughout his life after joe harvey dated a few different men who ranged in their political activism harvey was always and in his defense, most of the time for his own safety, nervous about their involvement in riots and altercations with police, particularly after one of his partners was brutalized by police in a New York City riot. Holy shit. Something else that like kind of plagues Harvey's life is, and I'm just going to put in just a really quick trigger warning, we are going to talk about suicide in Harvey's story. Um, so if that's not your cup of tea, it, there's not a lot of it, but just skip maybe the next two minutes. Harvey's partners, he uh, he had four partners that attempted uh, to die by suicide. Only one of them was ever successful in that attempt. But uh, it's like very much part of the reason that he's like so nervous because they get brutalized by these police. They'd be told by their family, like as with a lot of queer people, particularly in this time period, like you're being told constantly that what you are is wrong and like all of these things and you can't live the lifestyle that you want to live without being like brutalized by police and so like this was another reason that he was like had a really hard time with his partners being politically active because this would happen to them and then they'd fall into a dark depression and you know all of these things so it's just really sad that like just to be happy or like just to live their lives like this is what was going on but anyway As the 1960s came to a close and Harvey became more and more incensed with the wars and political climate of the U.S., similar to your lovely ladies, he began to change his relationship to political Hmm. activism. He grew his hair out in protest and was fired from his investment job in New York. While drifting around hoping to find meaning in his now middle-aged life, he became friends with a group of New York City flower children and was stripped of his remaining conservative values. He began actively protesting in the gay rights movement and began to come to terms with the pride he had in his sexuality. The night before Harvey's 40th birthday and a true transformation into middle age, he met Scott Smith, a 22-year-old from Florida. Harvey! Harvey, I will say, Harvey does date younger men. 
but he dates them for a long time until they're not young anymore. So, like, I don't, you know. He was of age. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. He also, like, financially supports these men a lot of the time. Anyway, it it is what it is. So he meets Scott Smith, a 22-year-old from Florida. The two hit it off and spend the next year driving across the country and living off of unemployment checks. Harvey felt like he hadn't really done anything in his life and was ready for a change. The two found themselves in San Francisco, the, quote, gayest city in the world, end quote. With only $1,000 between them, the two decided to open a camera shop on Castro Street. Neither of them really knew much about film, but they had the gay audacity to say, we'll figure it out. <laughs> gay audacity can get you anywhere. It really can. It's driven my life. It really can. It, it worked out really well for Harvey. We'll get into it. So as we know, Harvey is a very, very jovial guy. Yeah. He class clown. He makes friends really easily, enough so that he's able to live a pretty openly queer life at this point without like having like he still is definitely getting like like police are giving him shit things like that yeah. but, like his his social circle is very much like he becomes kind of a safe space for other queer people to come be around him and he's really good at giving advice to younger gay men trying to figure out how to navigate being gay and being out especially in San Francisco where it's starting to become a little bit more acceptable. So the camera shop quickly becomes the this like heart of the six block neighborhood. Harvey's infectious personality and now out and proud attitude made him a beacon to gay men in the area. People would come to his and Scott's store to ask for advice, find a safe space, or simply just to see and hang out with Harvey. Politically at the time, the U.S. was beginning to wake up to the gay rights movement on the heels of the civil rights movement. Police persecution around San Francisco was heating up, particularly in gay bars and queer gathering areas. People were getting arrested for having sex in public parks at night, which was one of the few ways closeted men found each other during that time. All of those arrested for having any sort of gay physical affection in these parks were getting added to sex offender lists. Yeah. Like, just absolutely uprooting their lives and their ability to work meanwhile san francisco politicians were seeing the value in the increasing gay vote as more and more queer men found refuge in their city while many attempts to legalize gay sex failed and that's what i love is that these bills are literally like to legalize two men having sex and like two women having sex like that is the whole point of the bill <laughs> is two consenting adults having sex like doing something in their own private time yes. that doesn't affect yes. anybody else so these attempts to legalize it fail but the politicians who are voting to pass these initiatives find themselves with more re-election power because the queer vote in san francisco is becoming such a large population yeah harvey at is actively watching this and hearing the people in his shop retell their run-in stories with police begins to get really angry he had teachers telling him about their underfunded classrooms which he'd been a teacher so he like had a lot of you know obviously emotional connection to that he had friends getting arrested for just being at gay bars and he was just completely fed up. He quote, this is a direct quote from him. He says, quote, finally reached the point where I knew I had to become involved or I needed to shut up. Which I like just love that point where you're like, I can't com keep just complaining about this. I have to go do it. I love that. We could all take a page out of that book, I think, for sure. Yes. Instead of complaining, actually doing something. I know I could be better about that. Yeah, well, and that's the, and he he stuck to his word. He does stump something. So the other thing that's also really interesting is his 
camera shop, while yes, was a refuge for just queer people living in his neighborhood, it was also a refuge for people that were trying to get things done in the neighborhood. So there was like a local elementary school that was in his kind of six block radius. And he had a teacher come to ask him for a slide projector because he's working. He's a camera shop Mm -hmm. because she'd requested one from the district and the district didn't have one because they didn't have the money for it. But, like, meanwhile, he's watching the police get funded more and more to, like, go and arrest gay people at gay bars. Sounds familiar. And he's, like, as somebody who's been an educator, who, like, you need slide projectors to teach, like, they're caring more about us, like, going to, like, gay bars than making sure their kids can... And they're, like, getting mad at us for, you know, potentially, like, influencing children to become gay. (sighs) This is such a relevant conversation. Everything that he deals with is something that we are now dealing with today. Yeah, it's just like how today, how most, so many schools don't have updated technology or supplies or pencils, but there's talk about Uh giving teachers guns. But you want to give teachers who are not experienced with handling guns expensive. Guns are not cheap. It's it's expensive to maintain a gun anyway. Like, just, like, uh, 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 okay. We could go off. Yeah, we we could. So could Harvey. (laughs) So Harvey decided to run for city supervisor in 1973, but the sweet, sweet man had zero political experience. But again, he had the gay audacity. His boyfriend, Scott, became his campaign manager, but they had no other staff and funded the entire thing out of the camera shop's earnings. They would literally just take what was ever in the till at the time to, like, go buy whatever they needed. Like, there was no no rhyme or reason. He went to a prominent gay political activist, Jim Foster, to ask for an endorsement in Jim's gay magazine. Foster told him absolutely not. For one thing, he didn't like Harvey's in-your-face approach and felt it scared off straight voters who might find him too flamboyant for office. Because his idea was, like, if we just present ourselves like we're straight people who just happen to be gay, maybe they'll be, like, nicer to us. Where Harvey was like, I'm allowed to be who I am. Like, I'm not going to, like, tone myself down. Like, I don't want to be a walking oxymoron. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Jim's other issue, he felt like Harvey hadn't done his time. He said to him, quote, there's an old saying in the Democratic Party, you don't get to dance unless you put up the chairs. I've never seen you put up the chairs. End quote. Harvey was furious, but he wasn't going to let them get in the way. He'd finally found his calling. Harvey's first campaign ran on a highly liberal platform while still focusing on small businesses and neighborhood voting protections. He wanted to legalize marijuana and gay relationships. Of the 32 candidates who ran, he came in 10th place in the polls. Wow. And this was a ma- even though he lost, it was a massive win for a gay man at the time. Especially yeah. without any endorsements. Yeah, that's a huge accomplishment. That's super impressive. Allison, you will love this next part. Oh, I can't wait. During his first campaign, he had a labor union leader come to his camera shop with no warning. And this is like a labor, like a big beefy guy. He's straight, like the handlebar. I'm imagining I'm the handlebar. Mafia. Yes, literally like like he not somebody that Harvey is used to coming into his storefront. We'll just I put believe it. That it. Way. They asked for Harvey's help in their strike against shady beer distributors by getting all the gay bars in his neighborhood to boycott Coors Beer. In exchange, Milk asked the union to hire more openly gay drivers. 
With his help, all the bars in the area dumped their cores and only sold union-friendly beers. The strike was successful, and more and more gay drivers were hired. After the success, Harvey was dubbed the mayor of Castro Street. He went on to found the Castro Village Association to help struggling queer businesses in his neighborhood drum up business, and he truly put Castro Street on the map as a safe space for gay business. His whole philosophy was basically gay people should be buying from gay businesses. Oh my god, he saw an opportunity and he made the best of it and he yeah. made it better. Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's amazing. So, two of years course. later, in 1975, and with growing notoriety after his help with the unions, Harvey decided to run for city supervisor again. During this campaign, he got smarter and hired any volunteer who would walk through his doors willing to help. Scott was once again his campaign man- manager, but things were starting to get rocky. Harvey was an intensely hard worker while campaigning, often logging 17-hour days canvassing and speaking. He became short and often yelled at Scott when anything went wrong. In the second run, Harvey got even closer to a win but still lost despite his ever-growing popularity. During the campaign, on September 22, 1975, then-President Gerald Ford visited San Francisco. As he walked from his hotel to his car, a woman named Sarah Jane Moore aimed a gun at him. Oliver Bill Sippel, who just happened to be nearby, instinctively grabbed her arm, causing the gun to fire into the ground and saving the president's life. Holy shit. Sippel, who had previously been involved with Milk's ex-lover, Joe Campbell, didn't see himself as a hero. So this is like a really weird coincidence. So this guy is friends with Harvey Milk now, but he happened to be Harvey's ex's ex, basically. I mean, we all just date each other. That's just how it is in the gay community. It's infuriating. So Sippel didn't see himself as a hero. He was on leave from the military due to a psychiatric disability, and he wanted to keep his sexuality private. But Harvey saw an opportunity to make a point. And this is not great. This is not This is not Harvey's finest moment. It, okay. it did what Harvey wanted it to do, but it was not great of What Harvey. year is this again? This is in 1975. Okay, so he is... Uh, and is, he's 43? 43. Four, mm. No. At this point, he's 46. He's 46. Got he it. He turns, or 45. He's, he's either between 44 and 45 at this point. Okay. But Milk saw an opportunity to make a point. He believed if gay people were more open about their lives, it would change negative stereotypes placed on them. He reached out to a newspaper to share the fact that Sipple was gay. A few days later, a columnist named Herb Can at the San Francisco Chronicle revealed that Sipple was gay and a friend of Milk's. The news spread to national newspaper, and Milk's name became associated with the incident. Time magazine even recognized Harvey as a leader in San Francisco's gay community. Sipple found himself bombarded by reporters, and his family faced the same scrutiny. Sadly, Sipple's staunchly Baptist mother in Detroit refused to speak to him ever again. Despite Sipple's involvement in the gay community, including participation in gay pride events, he sued the Chronicle for invading his privacy. President Ford did send Sipple a note expressing gratitude for saving his life, but Milk believes that Sipple's sexual orientation was the reason he received just a note instead of a full invitation to the White House. Oh. Oh. Yeah. There's a lot of layers there. Uh-huh. Harvey, sh- this is really shitty that Harvey did this. I kept this in because I think that sometimes with like these types of people – we like put them on a pedestal right and i think it's important to like acknowledge that harvey's human too right absolutely and they were able to rectify a little bit but it definitely like marred their friendship for obvious reasons and it was not good for sybil's mental health at all 
Anyway, despite his, you know, notoriety that he gained from this uh, experience in the news with Sipple, um, Harvey still lost his next bid for the city supervisor. Uh, he decided at this point to set his sights higher, again, the gay audacity, absolutely, and try for the state level. In 1977, he announced his, his third campaign and what would be his third subsequent loss. Scott finally had had enough. He and Harvey broke up after seven years together, but they still remained close friends and business partners in the camera shop hmm. for the rest of Harvey's life. Dealing with this third loss, Harvey quickly realized that he needed to go back to his roots and rely on DeCastro. He hired a lesbian campaign manager named Anne Cronenberg. Anne! Who I am now going to send you a picture of. I wish you would. I want to see how hot she is. She... I don't want to objectify people, but... (laughs) Well, I do. Oh, I also am going to send you a picture of him and Scott. I meant to send that to you earlier. I like his eye crinkles. Me too. He's a very smiley guy. Yeah, she's pretty cute. Mm -hmm. Aww. Mm, I love his boyfriend's mustache. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, with the help of Anne, he rebid for city supervisor once more. With the addition of the lesbian superpower, mm. Anne helped him secure three major newspaper endorsements and helped him easily win his third bid because she basically went in there and like there. I kind of I left this out because this is already getting so long, but. In his second campaign, his second and third campaigns, the second one for city supervisor and the third one for state supervisor, they kept everything on, like, scraps of pieces of paper. And, like, he had, like, an 11-year-old volunteer. Like, it was just anybody who would come in, he'd let them volunteer. They had, like, you know how you have to collect names for campaigning? They were just, like, basically on post-it notes, just, like, in a bag. Like, it it was a hot mess. It was a hot mess. But Anne came in and she was like, the fuck not. And she got that campaign together. She's the Jess of this era. I'm just picturing you walking into this office and being like, no, no, we need about 400 more file folders. Yeah, not happening. So he he easily won his third bid and he was inaugurated as a San Francisco City County Supervisor on January 9th, 1978, making him the very first openly gay man to be elected to office. And I nice. emphasis on gay man because a gay woman had already been elected to office a couple oh. years previously, but she she's talked about it because for a long time it was said that Harvey Milk was like the very first openly gay politician bar none. Um, and then it was discovered that she was actually the, and I should have put her name in here. I did not, but she has said that like she ran not publicly noting that she was gay right and he ran very much so she's like whatever give it to harvey i don't give a shit i mean who knows john adams could well have been and gay, that's the thing know? is it's like she wasn't like hiding the fact that she was gay but it wasn't like part of her campaign and like i think it's pretty clear that like we've had i'm sure there were lots of gay politicians prior to this but like open ones harvey harvey is was openly kind of gay first. that's a huge deal huge deal one because he was gay basically like he had the gay vote. He was not just because he was gay. He was he won for lots of reasons, but like won as a like out and proud gay man. Anyway, this made national news and came at a time when a highly active anti-gay campaign was happening nationally. A woman named Anita Bryant, a washed up singer slash commercial actress, became the face of a movement to push gay teachers out of schools and out of employment in general. When Prop 6, a ballot initiative to fire any potentially queer teacher in California, came on the scene, 
Harvey worked tirelessly to oppose the initiative. The ballot initiator, John Briggs, staunchly maintained that homosexual teachers wanted to abuse and recruit children. Milk responded with statistics compiled by law enforcement that provided evidence that pedophiles identified primarily as heterosexual and dismissed Briggs' assertions with one-liner jokes like, quote, if it were true that chicken mimicked their teachers, you'd sure have a hell of a lot of more nuns running around. End quote. Hmm. He also, from this point on, would start his speeches speeches with, hi, I'm Harvey Milk and I'm here to recruit you. Just as like a tongue in cheek, like, fuck you to Briggs. That year, over an estimated 250,000 to 375,000 people attended San Francisco's Gay Freedom Day Parade. Wow. Organizers asked participants to carry signs indicating their hometowns for the cameras to show how far people came to live in the Castro District. Um, I'm going to send you a quick oh. picture. Oh, my gosh. This is him with his sign that says I'm from Woodmere, New York. And that's the... He is so cute. He's so jovial. But that um, is such a good point though because if you think about it like i would be from logan utah like people from all over the world it's just like you could really see how far this actually reaches oh i love that so i don't know if this is a true story it's from the reenactment movie so that i didn't see this in anything that i read proving this but in the movie it seems like it's based off of a real thing. I don't know why they would have like made it up to put it in. But in the movie, he gets a phone call about a year before this event because people would just like call because when he became a face like this face of the movement. Right. He was obviously getting like death threats in the mail a lot. While, oh, yeah. But also like getting letters being like, you make me feel like I can like come out and like da 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 like you like people would come to his camera shop from like all over the world and be like, I've heard of you. I'm gay too, like just very much whatever. So yeah. anyway, he gets this phone call from this kid that says he's in Minnesota and that he doesn't feel like his life is worth living anymore because his parents are going to make him go to basically conversion therapy the very next day. And he's 16 and he doesn't know what to do. And Harvey's like, you deserve to be alive. You deserve to live your life fulfilled. Like I am living proof. And he was like, can you get on a bus and just go to the nearest big city Da, 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 and the the kid is like, I'm in a wheelchair. I can't. Damn. Like, I can't get out. Anyway, so Harvey just, like, does his best to talk him off the ledge. And then they, like, hang up. And then Harvey's like, I'm never going to know what happened to this kid. In the film, he goes to this basically right after he has this conversation with this kid. And in his speech, he says – he speaks to, the large, to a large crowd. And he says, on this anniversary of Stonewall, I ask my gay sisters and brothers to make the commitment to fight – for themselves, for their freedom, for their country. We will not win our rights by staying quietly in our closets. We are coming out to fight lies, the myths, the distortions. We are coming out to tell the truths about gays, for I am tired of the conspiracy of silence, so I'm going to talk about it, and I want you to talk about it. You must come out. Come out to your parents, to your relatives. And he gets a phone call from that same kid about a year later and is like, I got out. I'm living in a city now. It's like, thanks to you. Like, I was, like, from a small town in Minnesota, and now I'm, like, out. Again, I didn't find the story, like, yeah, confirmed anywhere, but it was in the movie. It was very touching. But anyway. Yeah, that is really touching. And I can also kind of see where Harvey's coming from, though, because it's, like, the thing of people who don't know anybody that's gay don't know they know that anybody that's gay. That was his entire thought 
process was he and and we'll get into this in like if you bit. don't have gay friends you don't know that you have gay friends yes exactly yeah but i can like see where he's coming from but you know it's to come out in that time period like we saw in my story just awful you're treated terribly yeah. so yeah. you know outing somebody is never yeah. the right choice but i can understand exactly why he did it so, despite the setbacks faced in various battles for gay rights throughout the country that year, Milk Group made hopeful and expressed, quote, even if gays lose the, in these initiatives, people are still being educated. Because of Anita Bryant and Dade County, the entire country was educated about homosexuality to a greater extent than ever before. The first step is always hostility. After that, you can sit down and talk about it, end quote. Oh, yeah. So... Regarding the the Prop 6, former governor of California, Ronald Reagan, citing concerns about potential infringements on individual rights, joined the chorus of opposition to the proposition. Governor Jerry Brown and President Jimmy Carter also expressed their disagreement. And on November 7th, 1978, the proposition lost by, by more than a million votes. In San Francisco, 75% of voters opposed the proposition. During his tenure as city supervisor, Milk's effectiveness and popularity stem from his commitment to serving a diverse constituency beyond the LGBTQ plus community. He pursued an ambitious reform agenda that encompassed various areas. Not only did he champion gay rights by sponsoring crucial anti-discrimination bills, but he also worked towards establishing daycare centers for working mothers and transforming military facilities into affordable housing. Furthermore, Milk aimed to revitalize neglected warehouses and factories by advocating for tax code reforms that would attract industry. Because again, Harvey is nothing if he's not a, a fantastic businessman and not without the gay audacity. <laughs> Truly get you anywhere. Um, his advocacy extended to issues surrounding the development of strong, safe neighborhoods. He applied pressure to the mayor's administration to enhance services for the Castro neighborhood, such as improving library access and implementing community policing initiatives. Additionally, Milk vocalized his support for state and national issues that affected the interests of the LGBTQ plus people, women, racial and ethnic minorities, and other marginalized communities. Because the other thing that we forget in kind of these types of stories, he is a Jewish man. He's a very Jewish man. His parents were started a synagogue in his small community. So, and I think a lot of times um, when we talk about queer people, sometimes we can because there is like so much tension between religion and like being gay we sometimes kind of push queer people's like spirituality down and like milk's family was like he was he was a proud jewish man and like even when he was a child and adolescence and in college anytime there was any sort of like um anti-semitism he was that was like something that he was like absolutely the fuck not that's such an interesting similarity like mm-hmm. both Thea and Edie yes, yeah their families are Jewish his parents were Lithuanian yeah that's crazy yeah however it wasn't all sunshine and roses during Milk's time as supervisor a fellow freshman supervisor Dan White staunchly opposed anything Harvey put forth the two had aggressive tensions and it was clear to all that they were never going to get along or vote on each other's policies On November 10th, 1978, only 10 months after he was sworn in, Dan resigned his position on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, saying that his annual salary of $9,600 was not enough to support his family. Days later, White requested that his resignation actually be withdrawn and he be reinstated, and the mayor at the time, Mayor Marsconi, initially agreed. However, after further consideration and intervention by other supervisors, particularly Harvey, convinced 
the mayor to appoint someone more in line with the growing ethnic diversity of White's district and the liberal leaning of the Board of Supervisors. The mayor planned to announce White's replacement on November 27, 1978. A half hour before the press conference, White avoided metal detectors by entering City Hall through a basement window and went to the mayor's office, where witnesses heard shouting followed by gunshots. Oh, shit. White shot Moscone in the shoulder and the chest, then twice in the head. White then quickly went to his former office, reloaded his police-issued revolver with hollow-point bullets along the way, and intercepted Milk, asking him to step inside his office for a moment. Oh, my God. Diane Feinstein, who worked in the building at the time, heard gunshots and called the police, then found Milk face down on the floor, shot five times, including twice in the head. Soon after, she announced to the press, Today, San Francisco has experienced a double tragedy of immense proportions. As president of the Board of Supervisors, it's my duty to inform you that both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed, and the suspect is Supervisor Dan White. Milk was 48 years old, and Moscone was 49. Oh my god. Within an hour, White called his wife from a nearby diner. She met him at a church, and she was with him when he turned himself in. Oh my god. That evening, nearly 40,000 people united on Castro Street and marched in solemn silence to City Hall, creating an awe-inspiring candlelight vigil that stands as one of the most poignant responses the queer community has ever expressed in the face of violence. I'm going to send you a quick picture. I have full body chills. I did not expect this story to go in that direction. Damn, Jess. This is them getting to City Hall. Whoa, yeah, that one turned out. And then this is an aerial view that was on the news. This is a powerful picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This next part is going to... It's wild. Great. Well, can't wait. Acknowledging the intense animosity directed towards the gay community, including himself as a primary target of daily death threats, Milk understood the grim possibility of his own assassination. As a precaution, he recorded multiple versions of his will, each intended, quote, to be read in the event of my assassination. In one of these recordings, he delivered the now famous words, quote, if a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. End quote. <gasps> you can listen to this. Oh my god. You can listen to him say this. So the movies that I like, even the documentary and the, then the movie that's like got Sean Connery in it, the movie keeps flashing to him recording these final stories, and they're all direct quotes from him, and you can listen to it now. Can we listen to that one? Uh-huh. Do you have that one? I don't have it handy, but I can find it really quickly. Hang on. I'm sorry. That is chilling. Okay. I'm just going to play the beginning little bit of it and we can cut. This is to be played only in the event of my death by assassination. I fully realize that um, a person uh, who stands for what I stand for, an activist, gay activist, becomes the target or the potential target for somebody who is insecure, terrified, afraid, or very disturbed themselves. Anyway, that's that's just a tiny bit of it. But okay. uh, he has three separate recordings. They're all um, roughly like five to ten minutes long of him just like telling his wishes and what he wow. wants in the course of his death. So he's very clear it's crazy he, to hear his voice. Yeah. it's He's very aware that this could have happened to him. So when it did, it's like, 
he was pre- like he was prepared to die for this cause. Wow. So, like I said, in one of the recordings, he delivered his now famous words, if a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. In the wake of his tragic death, his nephew, Stuart Milk, who shared a close bond with his uncle, courageously came out as gay, joining countless others across the nation who found the strength to embrace their true selves on the day Milk was killed. Damn. Shortly thereafter, during a gay rights march in Washington, D.C., a resounding chant echoed through the streets. Harvey Milk lives. <gasps> Ooh. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh... Milk's assassin, Dan White, received an acquittal for murder charges and a lenient sentence for manslaughter, partly due to what became widely known as the Twinkie defense. White's legal counsel argued that excessive consumption of junk food on the day of the killings rendered him unable to be held fully accountable for his actions. I'm sorry. If that were the case, I would kill somebody every day. Uh Uh Uh-huh. Like, we just went to the grocery store and bought excessive amounts of junk food. Uh Uh-huh. So on May 21st, 1979, the day before what would have been Milk's 49th birthday, White was sentenced to less than eight years in prison, a decision that sparked outrage and ignited what became known as the White Knight Riots. Enraged citizens stormed City Hall, police cars were set ablaze, and the city endured property damage. Good. In response, law enforcement retaliated by conducting raids in the Castro, vandalizing gay businesses, and brutally assaulting individuals on the street. Bad. Dan White only served five years in prison for both murders. He died by suicide three months after his release. Holy shit, Jess. Oh, my God. How did I not know any of this? Isn't that... I, like, kind of knew that he had been assassinated, but I did not know, like, anything about, about, like, how, the why, all of this. So, Harvey had two beautiful ceremonies to honor his life it was attended by thousands of people inside and outside the uh, synagogue where his funeral occurred he did request to be cremated and his close friends one of which was scott his ex-lover who was the one who picked up his ashes and was kind of in charge of all of his funeral procedurals because even though they weren't together anymore he was still like his closest friend yeah when he received his box of ashes he wrapped them in comic book strips because he knew that harvey wouldn't ever want to show up to something in only cardboard (laughs) they sailed on a boat in the san francisco bay together with all of his harvey's closest friends and drank and celebrated his life and scattered his ashes in a specific area of the san francisco bay (laughs) karen foss a professor and harvey milk scholar said of his impact quote milk happened to be a highly energetic charismatic figure with a love of theatrics and nothing to lose using laughter reversal transcendence and his insider outsider status milk helped create a climate in which dialogue on issues became possible he also provided a means to integrate the disparate voices of his various constituencies end quote Harvey's life, though cut short, did incredible things for the gay rights movement. In one of his, in his most famous speech, the Hope speech, he said, quote, You have to give them hope. Hope for a better world. Hope for a better tomorrow. Hope for a better place to come if the pressures at home are too great. Hope that all will be all right. Without hope, not only gays, but the blacks, the seniors, the handicapped, the us's, the us's will give up. 
And if you help elect to the central committee and other offices more gay people, that gives a green light to all who feel disenfranchised, a green light to move forward. It means hope to a nation that has given up because if a gay person makes it, the doors are open to everyone, end quote. And that is the life of Harvey Milk. I don't have words. I just... I did not know it was going to end so quickly. (laughs) How old was he when he died again? He was 49. How long was it from the time that he started politics to the time that he was murdered? He started politics in 1973, and he died in 1978. Five years. Five years. And I think the thing that's like, because he didn't do anything at like the federal level, right? But he became a martyr for a movement and and like because he was so well liked because he did more than just like advocate for gay rights. He also was like helping in schools and helping with communities and he was very much like community oriented. He had a lot of supporters, both gay and straight that loved him and he was a jovial guy like he was genuinely liked people liked listening to him speak they liked like just what he stood for all of these things and so when he died at like the height of like just the very beginning of his popularity basically like he had just gotten into office they were loving what he was doing he had a fantastic career ahead of him he became a martyr for the gay rights movement and you know when these the the white night riots happened like because of the intense police brutality there were marches all over the country and it was very much like a spurred on moment for gay visibility and like just what harvey stood for so i can't believe i've never heard of him before i'm so bad at being part of this community sometimes holy shit if i i wish that we had had this podcast episode a week ago because i would have gone to pride on sunday (laughs) Because I, I feel a, re-now, like a renewed invigoration of, like, these people literally died for yeah. this cause, you know? And, I mean, I think that's something that is prevalent in a lot of different civil rights movements mm-hmm. of, like, that's part of why Pride is so important. Yeah. Is he was assassinated. Like, yeah. Thea and Edie couldn't get legally married in the United yeah. States. But like, I think the other thing that's so important is that they were joyful. Like, I think that's something that's so impressive about Harvey is that, like, he was a happy man. Even though despite all of the oppression, despite all the things he was dealing with, despite the injustices he was angry about, he also was, like, a jovial person quick to laugh. And, like, Thea and and Edie loved each other and found so much joy in each other. And they laughed and danced together and they experienced queer joy, you know? And I think that's like also a big thing. Like when we were, when I was walking in the pride parade last week, there were obviously demonstrators on one corner. They had their little protest area of like, you know, the signs are like, you're going to hell, da da da. And it felt like such a, a triumph to cheer and dance and be happy and I I my friend Bridget that I was walking with was giving kids that were at the parade pride flags for them to wave and they were giving us high fives and like we got to just have so much joy in spite of these protesters that were there just being so convinced that we're all gonna burn in hell like spending their valuable Sunday being mad that we're all out here experiencing joy you know and I think that's such a, an interesting distinction you make because it's not so much that they're experiencing queer joy as they're experiencing joy. 
Yes. They were experiencing not queer love, but love. Yes. I don't think I don't think that's what people on the street corners understand is there's no difference. No. Like, there's no difference in love between you, sir, who have loved your wife for 44 years, and Thea and Edie, who've loved each other for 44 years. Exactly. It's, exactly. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And But then on the flip side, like, obviously, we are having, like, like transgender people are being, like, yes. absolutely... I, 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 there's there's no other word than they are like actively being hunted basically at this point yeah and are it's being clear that at a state level and then the inaction of the federal level are not protecting trans children specifically like they trans children more so than any like other trans group are being targeted with no affirming care like being you know like conversion camps these types of things and you know, like trans women, particularly trans women of color, are being murdered. Murdered, and yeah. The this is why we still have to keep showing up and fighting, and still have to like like Harvey and Edie and Thea did their time, and like it's important for us to like amplify their stories because they're examples of like this is why we keep fighting. This is why we keep you know voting and standing up for what we believe in. And even though it can sometimes feel uncomfortable, like having the important conversations with our parents or our friends that might not quite understand like the importance of trans affirming care and and that type mm-hmm. of thing. And like, I'm never going to go into politics. That's something that I just know is not for me, yeah. but like I'm going to continue to show up to the polls and vote. I'm going to keep donating to organizations that are protecting trans youth and like, yeah. And that's my form of protest. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I think that's something that, you know, when the older generation, to an extent, they're right when they say that the younger generation doesn't understand. No. We weren't there for Stonewall. We weren't there for Stonewall. And then we also weren't there for the AIDS crisis. No. And that's something I left out of my story. Like, that's one of the other times that lesbians and gay men came together was during the AIDS yes. crisis. They took care of gay men. Yes. Scott, his partner, that remained an an activist for the rest of his life died from AIDS related complications. Like there's several men that I didn't mention like by quite by name aside from Scott that worked on Harvey's campaigns. The only one of them that lived through the 90s was Anne, his lesbian. Holy shit, dude. Campaign manager. And she's still I'm pretty sure I need to double check this, but she was still active as of like the mid 2010s. Um, but like that's the thing. Like my grandpa, when he came out, he came out in the eighties, like late eighties, early nineties. Like he came out in the midst of the AIDS crisis, you know. And like I remember very, I remember very, very vividly calling my grandpa at one point, maybe my senior year of high school, or right after my senior year of high school, and having a conversation with him about how my two closest friends were gay and out as eighteen-year-olds, and he i remember my grandpa being like i'm so happy your friends can like experience that because for my grandpa he didn't get to do that you know like for a couple of different reasons but like he didn't get to have queer joy as a youth you know what i mean like it's just that i don't know where i'm going with this but (laughs) no i think you're absolutely right like while I absolutely will not deny how hard it was to be gay in Logan, Utah. No, not at all. Yeah. It was hard. It sucked. It Today, it's still not easy. No. However, when I was 18, I got to watch same-sex marriage legalized. Uh-huh. Edie was 88 years yeah. old. Yeah. She had fought her entire life to marry her wife. Uh-huh. 
she had fought and fought and fought and i was 18 and getting drunk in a canyon (laughs) like that's the distinction where it's like i have the privilege of being ignorant to the struggles that the people before me went through to be to get these rights and it's an honor and a privilege for me to be like i'm too tired from working three doubles this week i don't want to go to the pride parade Mm -hmm. and that's something I, i said i'm now regretting because of this entire podcast episode but it (laughs) it's a privilege to like the fact that we can even do pride the whole reason that we do like have a pride celebration is in honor of the stonewall riots like you know like that's like and and this is and this is the other thing is like queer talking like going back to queer media like things like rupaul's drag race and like the oh and i completely forgot to mention this i even i put a bullet point in here to mention this but the when harvey was running was campaigning the only people that would endorse him in his first run were drag queens <laughs> and like there was even there's this whole like he had this whole thing where he he had to convince his convince scott that it was worth their time to like pursue the drag queens and like help them get protected from police brutality outside of like gay bars because like a lot of times drag queens were also doing sex work and there was also like a lot of drag queens that were also like transgender women and that's like the safest way they could express their gender expression you know and so you know like that's that's the like like drag queens and trans women are really like the foundation of this so anyway alice and i've soapboxed for long enough but all this to say genuinely happy pride happy pride amplify queer voices amplify transgender voices particularly transgender women of color and if you are in a position to be able to do so i'm gonna link some places to donate in the description of this episode and i'll put it on our instagram story and uh we celebrate pride in june but we also celebrate pride every month of the year even though target only sells fun pride shirts in june and again i want to express my condolences for the pride bird we don't need to get into it. I don't want to hurt you. Um, R.I.P. Anywhore. This has been a great episode, Allison. Thank you for a sitting delight. in your basement and chatting about queer people in history. If you have a queer icon that you mm. feel like is worth people knowing about, send it my way. I'll share their stories on our Instagram. Please. And um, happy Pride. Happy Pride. <laughs> okay, okay, bye. bye. <laughs>